Welcome back to Talking PFAS podcast. I'm a journalist and your host, Kayleen Bell. If you're joining us for the first time, a very big welcome. I encourage you to listen to past episodes with a range of really excellent guests from around the world. Just before I introduce today's guest, I encourage you to have a listen to episode 42, which published yesterday. It's an update of the US EPA's proposed regulations regarding PFAS in drinking water. As discussed in last week's episode, the guidelines and regulatory limits for certain PFAS keep going down. The number of PFAS lawsuits keep increasing and the number of PFAS contaminated sites keeps growing. This means there will be no shortage of PFAS remediation work for quite some time. In fact, a PFAS remediation special edition of the Environmental Business Journal published in 2019, they state, and I quote, the Environmental Business Journal has wrestled with the extent and scale of the PFAS era in market terms. The EBJ has published a working model which reflects a consensus on the scale of the emerging PFAS market. The EBJ model includes major contributions from both waste and wastewater system upgrades and lifestyle costs as well as remediation. The model published in 2019 points to the possibility of expenditures in excess of $160 billion over the next 20 to 30 years and over 40,000 sites or facilities where significant PFAS contamination will likely be identified and treated or remediated at some level. Today's discussion is another chat about a PFAS remediation method. Today's guest is Peter Murphy, Managing Director of an Australian-based company, OPEC Systems. OPEC Systems trades as EPOC Enviro around the rest of the world, which stands for Emerging Pollutants of Concern. Today, we will be discussing at length EPOC's PFAS remediation technology for removing PFAS from water and landfill leachate using their SAF systems. We also discuss the challenges that short-chain PFAS compounds continue to present to remediators and how the SAF has navigated these challenges so far. SAF system trials have already been conducted in Oki, Queensland, at a Department of Defence site and at a landfill site in Telgay, Sweden. These two systems have now moved out of their trial period into a fixed contract period. SAF has also been trialled in UK as well as at an undisclosed location in the US on the east coast of New York and it will be involved in projects in Spain, Germany, Massachusetts and Minnesota. And just recently announced on the 13th of April, Epoch Enviro announced plans to open a major manufacturing facility in Statesville, North Carolina with the first US built SAF units scheduled to start PFAS remediation work in July this year, 2023. Pete Murphy from Epoch States, in their recent media release, our award-winning SAF technology has already visited eight different US states, and we're looking forward to leveraging this impact to all corners of the globe, including back home in Australia, to help communities remediate their PFAS-impacted waters. However, despite the huge investments in remediation technology that are happening around the world, very little, if any money, has been invested to come up with solutions to clean up private land or farms that have been contaminated by PFAS. That is certainly the case in Australia and indeed also in many other parts of the world. I discuss this scenario very briefly with Pete today at the end of the episode. As always, I will have some very helpful links from today's episode in the show description tab at my show page at Talking PFAS at Omni FM. Now to today's PFAS discussion with Pete Murphy from Epoch Enviro. Welcome to Talking PFAS Pete Murphy, I'm wondering if you could please introduce yourself, who you work for and your role. Yeah, hi, Kayleen. Thanks for having me. My name's Pete Murphy. I'm from a company called OPEC Systems over here in Australia, or we trade as Epoch Enviro around the rest of the world, and my role is Managing Director. Today, we're going to be talking about your surface active foam fractionation technology. Now, this is for removing PFAS from water, not soil, correct? Correct, but we do treat soil wash water. Pretty much all soil treatment processes use huge amounts of water, and so we have a good function within that process of just stripping the PFAS out of the process water. We're starting to increasingly get involved in soil washing projects, and the SAF typically is used to treat the wash water that is used to transition the PFAS from the soil particles into an aqueous phase, and then we treat that aqueous phase. 
Right. Could you just explain what foam fractionation actually is? Because this is not a new technology, is it? No, so foam fractionation as a process has been around, well, certainly since the 60s and probably beforehand, but it's the process of aerating a contaminant impacted water bodies to float those contaminants up through the water body and then they present at the surface and then we've adjusted this fractionation process to harvest PFAS. PFAS have this convenient ability to convert to foams, which of course is what they're largely designed for, particularly in the firefighting foam area. And so we use the surface active nature of the PFAS compounds to adhere to the air water interface where they rise to the surface. And then we harvest as various forms of either foam or frothy liquids, and then we separate them out from the majority of the water body and then we go about concentrating that harvested material to as small a volume as we can. Okay, we're going to break all that down for people. What's new here with this foam fractionation technology? I would say nothing's particularly new. It's probably the combination of processes that is new and and applying it to PFAS specifically, I guess, is the new step. But PFAS compounds have this hydrophilic functional head group and then they have this hydrophobic tail. And typically those compounds, particularly the C6 PFAS and above, they really like the surface of an air bubble because it allows the tail to to reside in its lowest energy state on the surface of the air bubble while the functional head group remains in the water where it likes to be and so they kind of are at a thing called the Gibbs free energy is in its lowest state so they're at their most comfortable as a molecule and so they tend to prefer that to just free floating in the water body so they are actually drawn to the air water interface as we float bubbles up through this water column and then we take them for a ride to the surface and harvest them. But then these short chain ones want to avoid that surface air location, right? Yeah, look, they still will amend to it to some extent. You can get short chains to adhere to the surface water interface, but it typically takes the addition of another surfactant to sort of provide another architecture for those short chains to adhere to or take that ride to the surface. So without those added surfactants, we tend only to get small percentages of them, somewhere between 5 and 50% recovery of anything less than a, a C5 or less. That's a point that I do want to make sure we get time to talk about and expand on just a little bit further after watching the webinar. So just for people listening that might really want further technology after this discussion today, they can go to your website and there is a series of five webinars on this technology for PFAS. Yes, they're on www.epocenviro.com. There's a bunch of webinars. I think it's in the resources area, the resources tab. But also you now stepped into manufacturing, right? With your SAF facilities, you are manufacturing them in Western Sydney at Emu Plains. You've just got a manufacturing facility that's been going for about a year. We're well into our second year now. So we're punching out about 20 odd units a year out of Emu Plains. We're going to push that up to about 50. And then on LinkedIn, we announced we've got a new manufacturing facility starting up in America. That system or that facility will do about 150 systems a year. So between the two of them, by the end of this year, we should have a capacity up around 200 SAFs a year, which is about 10 billion litres of water that they could treat. So we're starting to get up there. Is manufacturing new for OPEC? We've got a pretty extensive design and engineering capability within the company. We design and build a lot of large systems, particularly fuel, bulk fuel infrastructure. We've been building fuel systems for near on 20 years. A lot of the movement, the fluid dynamics associated with the SAF systems had its origin in fuel transport systems. So we were used to pumps and pipes and valves and transfer systems. Okay, you've got lots of experience with manufacturing as well as facilitating those techniques in the field. Correct. We build them. So we typically design, build, operate and maintain uh, a lot of the systems we do, including all the SAF systems. As we've moved overseas, we've developed some relationships with some really good partners to do some of that work. Yes, because these SAF systems, just for people that might not have seen pictures of them, which they can see from your website, they are built in shipping containers. Is that the only way they are built? Yeah, well, the the first one we built up at the Oki Army Aviation Centre in Queensland, it was kind of half in a container and half out, if you like it. We were just trying to figure it all out. 
out. And then from that design, we consolidated all of the lessons learnt. We put them into this 40 foot container footprint. And then since then, all of the units that are out there now are in these 40 foot containers, which are kind of a plug and play design. So you bring them to site, put them on a hard stand, level them, and then plug power in, plug your influent line and your effluent line in, and they should be ready to go. So typically we're kind of processing water within a day of getting to site. Well, that's interesting, but they're not really a set and forget system, are they? Because every site has its own specific water and issues coming in and like pH, temperature to consider, water salinity, all of those things. Every site is specific from what I heard from your webinar. It seems like there still needs to be technical oversight. Does that happen with your systems? It does. So there's a tuning process that starts at commissioning. So you come in and these waters have different foaming characteristic, water chemistry characteristics vary. And so you're adjusting typically the aeration energy in its simplest form so that you get the right amount of foam. You don't want to over foam where you convert the whole water body to a foam neither do you want too little so there's a bit of a, a tuning process ongoing with the client for a month or two while you get it right and then i would say there's also a broad envelope of water types that the SAF can handle it can handle from sort of single digit parts per trillions up into the many hundreds of thousands of parts per trillion ranges and a range of pHs and organic contents and cross chemistries and electrolytes none of those particularly impact the system in a bad way it is fairly versatile but you do want to optimize it I suppose when you first kick it off and then in terms of ongoing operation landfill leachates tend to have a little bit more of a presence and then things like groundwater and relatively clean waters, they are a bit more set and forget. Typically, we'd recommend there's about a 2 to 5% presence on site for an operator to be kicking the tyres, making sure the thing's running well and there's no little leaks or things that we're missing. Once you sell these systems and set them up for clients, if they don't want you to monitor, is it left in the hand of the client to monitor, to make sure there's no leakage and to report we have a couple of different levels of service. So we have a remote telemetry service. So everything that opens and shuts or has any electrical impulse within the system captures a signal for us. And we also have onboard videos and mics on the system. So we can actually have our remote telemetry operators who are now running around the clock. We've got teams in Europe, the US and in Australia here that are watching all of our systems out in the field. They get notified of any faults. 90% of the time, I would say, or even a little bit more, we can usually resolve the issues remotely with a reset or some sort of process using the onboard PLCs. But sometimes we'll just need to notify the client and say, hey, you've got a leaking seal on this particular pump. Can you get down there and fix it? We have various levels of alarms from kind of catastrophic you know, buns are filling up with water, so stop the system altogether, right through to minor things like maybe one of our vessels is offline, but the rest of them are all functioning efficiently. So we let the client know. So we can do that remote telemetry service. And then we've also got this much more hands-on operation and maintenance side of things. And, and for the landfills in particular, where it is a bit more hands-on, we're finding it's almost better that we go there and we provide a turnkey solution where we just land the system on site. We say we'll deal with all of the requirements to keep it operating for you. And then and the model we've adopted in the US is more around a kind of a cents per gallon style of model. Why are landfills more problematic? I would imagine it's just because of the diversity of chemicals and contaminants that might be present in a landfill. Am I correct in that? Yeah, you have a real cocktail in those environments. I mean, there is just such a bunch of, of co-chemistries that mix through there as the rainwater percolates through the landfill. It picks up all manner of different chemistries. So by the time you get them at the bottom of the landfill site running through your SAF, you got a, a whole bunch of other stuff that foams as well. So it is more complex and as a consequence, it requires a little bit more tuning to get it right. But, you know, we've treated now hundreds and hundreds of millions of litres or gallons of product through our SAFs at landfill sites and have shown that they're quite a stable system. But those differing chemistries just make it a little bit more complicated. So my preference is to have our people there who are really familiar with the system, managing them at least for the first month or two while we get it right. So I guess for me, the questions that come up is what happens on an ongoing long-term basis? Because if it is up to clients to to self-monitor. I imagine these units are expensive and as all PFAS cleanup is, would clients that get these systems from you be likely to cut corners in that monitoring phase and just adopt that set and forget mentality 
because that could create problem if the system doesn't work right. I guess it's a generic problem for all remediation systems is if you don't pay attention to them, you run the risk of them not performing at some point and you're not noticing. And because we've got the remote telemetry capability, we tend to watch them and we do have a pretty good eye on how they're performing and, and whether anything's gone wrong. But I would say, sure, if you left them for a few years and just expected them to operate autonomously, you would probably find something would go wrong. I wouldn't be recommending that. But I think with a fairly modest kind of an observation program to just make sure that mechanically they're functioning well, and then an appropriate testing regime, which is typically set by the regulators rather than the clients, you will see if you're starting to creep outside of those required performance envelopes or not. And if you are, then you need to have a look at why. Yeah, and I guess when we're talking about the US and even Europe, they're a bit more advanced on the regulatory system, aren't they, than Australia? Uh, I'd say certainly the US is moving fast and Europe came out of the blocks pretty quickly. I'd say Australia actually came out of the blocks first and we went through this enormous characterization effort and then Europe followed fairly close behind through 2019, 2020. The thing is there are a lot of sites and as regulators and governments are coming to terms with the extent of remediation that's required, they understandably want to make sure that they're not making any mistakes in the early days. So there's a lot of testing, there's a lot of trialing happening, there's a lot of accreditation of technologies through bodies like the ITRC and through the Horizons program in the EU. Similarly, Defence have taken a big role here in Australia in validating a lot of the performance metrics of different technologies, which you know, I think is a good thing. We have the US EPA taking a lot of action on PFAS. The proposed levels are already a lot lower than what Australia even has as their drinking water standard now. We've been observing the regulatory environment since we first got involved seven or eight years ago, and it's only gone in one direction. The requirements are getting lower and lower. Around leachates, we're more seeing limits in that 20, 20 parts per trillion for summer PFAS seems to be a fairly common number around a lot of the different regulatory environments, as high as 70, but getting quite low on individual species, particularly PFOS and PFOA. So basically, the costs of remediation of PFAS is going up. The levels, though, are going down, whether that's drinking water, standard or health advisories, they are going down and litigation is going up. So remediation has never been more important than it is right now. I've been an environmental scientist for 35 years and I've never seen a kind of bow wave of remediation activity like we're seeing at the moment for PFAS. It's unprecedented. It's phenomenal any environmental conference now around the world, you're not going to have one session on PFAS. You're going to have so many that you can't attend them all, correct? Oh, absolutely, yeah. We, we have a long list of potential forums to present abstract. It's hard to get around and also keep your commercial focus as well. And we tend to leave a lot of the academic discussion and so on to other groups. I just want to be a doer and get out there and do it where we can. Can we just talk very briefly about the journey of SAF in the early days in Australia? In the podcast, in episode four, I interviewed Professor Robert Niven, and that's when I first heard the name. OPEC systems because Professor Niven had got a ARC grant to help develop two technologies. Your foam fractionation was one of them working with OPEC systems and I believe Macquarie University were involved there as well. So could you just give a little comment about those early days getting this technology developed in Australia? Yeah, sure. So OPEC had worked a lot in two spaces. One was in defense space, remediating chemical weapons sites, old World War II um, sort of toxic remnant of war sites. So a range of different complex contaminants with overlapping risk profiles. And so we had a pretty good relationship with the Defense Environmental Remediation Program. And we also had this kind of engineering skill set that we developed in the energy side of the business, building fuel systems and oil spill response control equipment and so on. So I was having a conversation in Canberra with one of the head people within the defense 
remediation program and they asked me what I knew about PFAS. This is back in early 2015 and you know, I'd heard of fluorocarbon chemistry, but I didn't really have any deep understanding of it whatsoever, as, as I would say 95% of listeners didn't before 2015. I went back to my business partner and I said, this PFAS, I reckon we should have a look at that. We did a bit of a deep dive with an internal team and then we put a white paper to defense saying that we would look at a number of alternative technology options outside of GAC and RE which were pretty recognised and still remain recognised technologies in that remediation space. But Defence wanted us to look at something that was new. So we looked at sonication and reduction and oxidation techniques and fungal digestion. And then ultimately, Dave Burns, who's our senior scientist and analytical chemist by training, and also a hobby aquarium keeper, said, I think this idea of protein skimmers or foam fractionation might work. It was kind of a little bit knocked on the head earlier, but Dave's particularly persistent as a bloke. Once he's got an idea, he likes to pursue it. So he did a little bit of work off on the side with the kind of proverbial butner flask and a little air stone in it with a sample that we had from one of the air bases. And lo and behold, this kind of foam mass emanated from the top of the flask as soon as began the aeration process. And so he recorded that. It still remains a little recording for posterity. Were you not expecting it to work? Well, we'd read a couple of previous papers. So a huge desktop review of all of the papers we could find was part of our initial work. And there had been a couple of papers that had suggested that it wouldn't work as an effective technique. So we were a little bit pessimistic, I'd have to say. But the second that that physical experiment was conducted, we were like, oh my goodness, that was a real kind of eureka moment. Within a month, we'd kind of abandoned all the other areas. We'd presented a white paper to defense about the options. And then with that project finished, we went to work refining foam fractionation as a process. We built a lab down at our Williamstown facility in Melbourne. We bought a few protein skimmers from aquarium shops to get us started on the concept. And then we built our own versions as we kind of thought about some of the engineering complexities of actually harvesting the foam and how to do that. And so we had one called Slim Jim and another one called Godzilla. And there were all these kind of random, quite funny looking um, bits of equipment that sat around for a year or two while we refined the process, wrote some more white papers, did our own analysis internally. And, and then in 2018, in about May, we were lucky enough to secure a, one of four contracts with the Department of Defence in Australia to provide water treatment systems for PFAS on one of their sites. And as I said earlier, we got the Oki site up in Queensland and we've been there ever since. We started installing that system in December of 2018. We, it was commissioned and running by May of 2019. And so it's been running now for three odd years. It's now a permanent facility on the site. It's treating about 10 litres a second of PFAS impacted waters. And it hasn't had any exceedances in all of that time. It's just been like the John Deere tractor of PFAS remediation for us. It's just chugging along. So I would have to say we've pushed OPEC to the absolute limits. We've lent on all of the other divisions to fund this research. It's all been done internally. You know, we just had a, a bit of a vision on what it could look like and what we could do. And we had that internal expertise in engineering and design to be able to let us move to commercialization pretty quickly. And then by 2020, we'd had an order for a, um, a system to go to a landfill in Sweden, um, ordered by a company called Envitec over there, who have become our distributor over there in Europe. Those guys took the punt on us and we built our first containerized SAF system, which is similar to the systems you'll see today. That unit's still operating to this day. That arrived in January of 21, I think. I just wanted to quickly ask, can you describe what a protein skimmer is? Sure. So a protein skimmer is just a, a tall column that is being aerated and it's moving all of the fish food and waste products up and out of the of the aquarium system. Fantastic. So Dave is an avid aquarium owner, is he? And that's how he got the idea? He is. He has 20-year-old fish in his tank at home, which I find amazing. But he had the seed of that idea. He's one of the original inventors and he's been pushing very hard ever since. Where does Associate Professor Robert Niven and Macquarie University fit into the development of the early days of this foam fractionation system in Australia under that ARC grant? Because I've talked about that in episode four of the podcast. So SAF was already developed and commercialised when we applied for the ARC grant, but we were looking on that grant to look at how we could apply soil liquefaction, which was this process of liquefying the soil body, the upper layer of the soil on PFAS impacted sites and adding air using a cofferdam approach to try and float up PFAS compounds. That was the original premise of the ARC grant. What we asked 
Rob and the team from Uni New South Wales and Macquarie to help us with was just to refine the process. We wanted to look at whether we could transition it into the soil, treatment of soil. That was the bit that Rob and Jen Long from UNSW were looking at for us. And Scott Wilson and Tony Morrison from Macquarie Uni were looking at how we might enhance its removal from water. There's a couple of articles in Wiley. So I'm going to put those in the show notes because we will not probably get time to break them down, unfortunately, but they're well worth people having a look at that. And one was working with surface waters, one was working with leachate. In two different climates, though, it is important to point that out. Oakies had much higher temperatures than Sweden, of course. Did the temperature have any significant impact on your results or did you get similar results in Sweden as you got in Oki? Yeah, in a nutshell, the results in both Oki at plus 40 and Sweden at minus 30 were very similar within within a percentile of each other. Did that surprise you? It did surprise me and our work in terms of the influence of temperature is not over. We've done some lab testing at 4 degrees and 36 degrees Celsius because it does shift the absorption coefficient of individual molecules. It will to some extent influence the outcome, particularly of the stripping process, the first stage where you're actually removing the PFAS from the water body. So what will influence it more, Pete, if it's too cold or it's too hot? So we got slightly better results in the colder weather in Telgay in leachates than we did in Oki. There's a course of number of other factors is that you've got this really complex chemistry at Telgay in the in the leachate waters versus the relatively pure waters of, of Oki. So the presence of organics and other co-surfactants might have influenced that slightly improved performance in the colder weather. In Oki, you had high electrolytes, didn't you, which had an impact on absorption in a good way. It actually increased absorption, if I've got that right. That's right. So the presence of electrolytes enhances the absorption process. It shifts the absorption coefficient for those molecules. So they're favorable for us in terms of performance. What are electrolytes? Where do they come from? Because Oki, you noted in your reports, had a high percentage of electrolytes in the water. So is that another contaminant that's in there? or what's electrolytes, where do they come from? So typically the metals in a water body are picked up. They may come from a contamination source. They may say to drain through a landfill, um, you know, a lot of rusting car bodies and so on might bring iron in. But more typically it's related to the geology of the conditions through which the water passes. So at Oki, we picked up calcium and that created calcium carbonates. In New York State, we picked up manganese. In other states, we picked up iron. It's more a reflection of the geology. In a brackish water, for example, if we were part of an intertidal zone trying to treat PFAS-impacted waters, the electrolytes would only assist us, whereas if you had perhaps another absorption-based technology, GACs or resins, they would very likely be problematic for those other techs. So it just gives us a bit more versatility is the ability to manage a wide range of, of electrolytes. Yeah, this is why the whole PFAS remediation area is just so complex. Uh, you need to have a certain level of expertise to be able to get in there and do this. Yeah, there's a really wide range of variables at sites. And so we wanted something really almost agricultural in its nature. And that's why we have constantly just tried to stay with air bubbles. It's tempting to add fancy bits and pieces all, all the way through and you read all this fantastic research, but we just wanted a solution that was scalable to meet the magnitude of the problem. And so for us, air bubbles with this kind of infinite availability, we wanted to just see how far we could take that. Air is obviously free. It's abundant. It's cheap. It's readily available. And for anybody listening, any residents that live in communities where they've been experiencing PFAS contamination, they can rest easy because it's just air, correct? Yeah, that's right. We don't use any chemicals. We just use air bubbles drawn from the atmosphere to do the fractionation process. Very simple. In your webinar, you have a gentleman from CDM Smith. So Mark Salvetti is talking about their use of the SAF in undisclosed location in the US. Are you able to say where that was? No, we're still under an NDA, but it was it was on the east coast of New York. Okay, east coast of New York. So he's talking about that and this is like one of your breakthrough announcements in that webinar because it was on how can you improve the removal of short-chain PFAS using your SAF system. And he goes on to explain about they use some additives and I just don't know what those additives are because he didn't say. The common one that a lot of us have used in this space is CTAB, which is a C16 surfactant. 
C-T-A-B, C-TAB. The problem with C-TAB is it's an aquatic toxin, not a heavy one, but you know it is an aquatic toxin. And so there's always a nervousness in adding a chemical to recover a chemical and potentially making the problem worse, right? We used C-TAB, it was readily available, and we got some really good results. I was super excited when all this came through because we'd done quite a lot of, you know, hundreds of millions of, of gallons at that stage of, of various types of water and hadn't had a lot of results below PFHXA, which is a C6 carboxylate. Its absorption coefficient is about as low as you can effectively get a reliable high rate of recovery above say 90%. Um, once you get into the shorter chains, they've been problematic. But with the addition of this C16 surfactant, we were able to harvest right down to even PFBS. We didn't quite get to PFBA, which is the C4 carboxylate, but we got excellent removal rates on um, PFBS and everything above it. So that kind of opened our eyes to what be able to be done. PFBS a C5? To C4. And that is often very present in automobile manufacture. Correct, yeah. A lot of the products that are used for surface tension breaking often have PFBS and, for that matter, PFBA in them, the shorter chains, whereas the firefighting firms, they have a, a different signature, which is typically more sort of C6 and above heavy. They still have some short chains, typically there's 30 or 40 PFAS compounds in these mixtures, but the short chains are much more common in landfill leachates because you've got a lot of old furniture and old clothes and shoes and things that contain the... You just said you don't use chemicals, but then there is this addition of the C16 for the purpose of enhancing removal of short chain. If I got that correct, is that the only time you would add it? That's correct. We've never needed it for any of the longer chain compounds, so the air bubbles work absolutely fine. We do have a dosing system as a standard feature in our SAF units now, so if clients want to experiment with the addition of different chemistries to enhance the removal process, as short chains become regulated, which I think is almost an inevitability, when that time comes, we just wanted to build these systems with the capacity to provide that capability. And then I think our challenge is to find some really good biosurfactants. So we're working with Alonia, who's our distributor in the US, and they have a, an excellent in-depth understanding of biologically derived products, including surfactants. So we're really hoping that through our work with those guys, we can come up with a, a much less harmful additive that still enhances our ability to remove short chains. Absolutely. So a biosurfactant, is that like a more organic or eco-friendly solution? So I don't pretend to be an expert in biosurfactants, but they're biologically derived surfactants that are typically drawn from enzymes. So the guys at Alonia have a great capability to to take naturally occurring organisms and then derive these naturally produced surfactants from them and then produce them at scale. So that for us is much more interesting than taking something that's potentially a bit aquatic. Even if we're removing it all, there's always that unknown. Like as we know we're removing it to say part a part per trillion level, but I don't know that I'm removing it to a part per quadrillion level. So it's like how low is safe? Well, that's it. These additives, if they are added in, if they if they become regulatory and you need to remove short chain PFAS, and people have to do an additive to get that removal, what's going to happen to all the destructive technologies that are being developed right now for PFAS? If we're going to start putting additives into your process, how do you know? that those destructive technologies will also be destructive for that additive. I note in your webinar, your US example, that the additive was removed along with the PFAS when they scooped off the bubbles. But then what if that additive's not removed when you're going to destroy the tertiary fractionate? That's a good question. And, and there's a lot of research to be done in that area to ensure that we're providing a complete and final destruction solution, not just for the PFAS, but for any additives that uh, that might be problematic. I can say on the CDM Smith work, we also tested for the presence of CTAB um, to as low a level as we could in the effluent from their electrochemical oxidation cell. They had what they call their eco, and it was destroyed completely in that work. They used what process for destruction? So they have an electrochemical oxidation cell using a boron doped diamond cell. So that system, we've tested with pretty much every destruction capability on the market. They've all had samples of our tertiary concentrate and all of them have been able to 
destroy it, including CDM Smith with their eco were able to destroy the tertiary PFAS concentrate, but also the CTAB that had been harvested in that was also destroyed. And one more question on this topic and then we can leave it. But page 141 of the first article that you had in Wiley talks about McLeaf and others demonstrated that the addition of iron 3 chloride could have a moderate improvement on removal. And the authors, which is yourselves, hypothesized that Fe3 plus iron acted as a coagulant. Can I ask, did you play around with the addition of iron 3 chloride? So we haven't played around with it. I know Phil McLeaf and Lutz Arends, who are, who are a couple of excellent academics up there in Sweden, have been playing around with that. And I believe it's working well as a coagulant and it could in principle be added to the SAF process, but I haven't done any work on it. Whatever additive you decide to use or someone decides to use, how do they actually work with the short chain? Uh, you know, we say that they're more slippery and evasive of going to the surface air bubbles. So do these additives just go out and seek these little short chain molecules and gather them up, so to speak? Yeah, I think everyone's fascinated to know what's actually going on down there at the molecular level. I mean, there's a lot of speculation about what might be occurring. It seems to us that as we add these long chains, they create some sort of a bonding capability. We think it relates more to the functional head group than it does to the tail group to allow those products to basically bind to the longer chains. These longer chains, surfactant additives, of course, rise up as a foam as well and bring the short chains with them. And so it's kind of a default harvesting technique. There's a guy called Charles Newell who's done some excellent work with a, um, a product that he calls gas afrons. They kind of adopt similar principles where they target the functional head groups of the short chains as opposed to our process, which really targets the tail chemistry. It seems to me that for a whole complete PFAS removal, that means trying to go after the long chain and the short chain. It seems like at this stage, an additive would be needed. Am I correct? You are correct. I think there's a treatment train approach is going to be the ultimate solution. And it may involve additives or it may involve things like GAX or resins being at the tail end. You know, at Oki, the very first plant we did, we put resins and GAC at the back end because we didn't know if our technology was going to work, frankly. As it turned out, it did and it removed 99.5%. But that last tiny little bit was removed by the GAX and resins. And the benefit I see of a treatment train approach as opposed to any single technology is you know, each has their strength, but with absorbance, you don't want to have a great solid waste stream and you don't want to have an expensive consumable to replace or have to wash it out and regenerate it. So if you can use air bubbles to do 99.5% of the work and then just use these other materials to do the remainder of the polishing, I think that's a really elegant consolidation of tech. So resins and gacks for polishing have been the traditional way we've done it. And then more recently, we've moved into looking at how surfactants might work to be able to let us do this polishing as well. And then we've still got a lot of investigation to see. I'm all about green chemistry and what is the most sustainable and, and non-invasive, non-harmful way to achieve this outcome of removing PFAS from the environment. So we've always got an eye for, you know, the principles of green chemistry. You know, adding a chemical to remove a chemical always makes me pretty nervous, I'd have to say. Well, I think it makes most of our listeners pretty nervous. And this is why I did harp on this, because if it becomes needed that you must remove the short chain from a regulatory point of view. Well, this is a serious discussion to have, isn't it? But your goal at OPEC, EPOC, is to use more environmentally friendly Additive. Correct. Yeah. Our holy grail would be a really effective biosurfactant that isn't an aquatic toxin that allows us to enhance the short chain removal capabilities of our process down to whatever the new regulatory guidelines are. Okay. So is that where you're focusing a lot of attention now? Oh, look, again, there's this tension between the commercial realities of day-to-day -day operation, keeping things going and our inquisitiveness around what else we can do better. At the moment, regulatory environments have defined certain compounds for removal. And fortunately for us, most of those are removed by SAF alone. So in the leachate environment where we 
really are standing alone, I guess, as a technology because resins and GACs don't fit well into that type of matrices. You know, we're really just targeting mostly PFOS, PFOA, down to PFHXS, these kind of materials. But at the same time, we're doing a lot of research. I mean, as a small company, it's privately held. I think we kind of punch well above our weight in terms of the research that we invest in to try and see how we can do it a better way in the future. So we've got Dave leading our R&D initiatives, and then we've got this kind of commercial side that's punching out SAF products to resolve the problem as it stands in this point in time. That makes sense. But the other issue is not going to go away either because as the long chains are ceasing production or in some places they've increased, but eventually long chain will be replaced by more and more short chains. There's over 12,000, I believe, PFAS compounds now. So many of those would be short chain, wouldn't they? Yeah, there's a broad range of chain links. There are certainly short chains in the equation going forward and we need to learn how to deal with those. I, I was really inspired by some work a few years ago by Swedish guy, um, Andreas Malayev, and he was looking at resonance times of these various compounds in human blood. And, you know, while PFOS and PFOA and PFHXS, they're measured in years, you know, multiple years. Some of these other shorter chain compounds are measured in minutes and hours. So that's not to say that they're not toxic if you're constantly exposed over a lifetime of them, but there is a, a difference between how long these things sit in the dense protein of the human body um, before they can be expelled and how much harm they do. So I think there's a lot of research in that space still to be unfolded and unpacked because regulators need to be careful what they ask for if they designate short chains and they can't practically be removed. I mean, we haven't really done ourselves any favours. February 2023, you announced the creation of four never the world's first full-scale closed loop PFAS remediation offering. What is that, please? So Forever is a four-way partnership between a company called Heritage Crystal Clean, who are a US waste management company. They focus a lot on liquid waste management. So they have a lot of vacuum trucks, about 1,900 staff, many hundreds of vehicles to transport PFAS impacted waste, particularly in this instance, we're looking at landfill leachates and industrial process water. We've partnered with Alonia, who, as I mentioned earlier, are looking at our biosurfactant solutions to help us enhance the short chain removal. And they're also our distributor for the US market. And then Revive Technologies. So Revive is a spin-off from Battelle for their annihilator supercritical water oxidation system. So SAF covers separation and concentration. The HCC guys cover the transportation and the logistics side of it. And then you've got Revive with their annihilator looking after the destruction side. So we think at commercial scale, it's the first offering that we've seen in the market. We're moving up to about a 10 billion litre a year capacity by the end of the year through our systems that'll be out in the market. So it's starting to reach a scale that in some way makes a dent in these huge volumes of PFAS impacted water that we're seeing out there. Absolutely. How many systems do you have out there? Do you have that number at hand? Yeah, we've got 16 systems out there spread between Europe and Australia and the US. We're currently producing, we move to two units a month from next month and then three units a month from June. And then we, we ultimately peak out at about 14 or 15 units a month towards the end of next year. So we're just building teams and staff on the floor to get things happening as quickly as we can. And that's a huge part of the problem. You can have all these solutions, but if you can't commercialize to the scale that's needed to deal with the scope of this problem, you know, we really haven't gotten anywhere. Yes, that's true. But um, there's a lot of work involved there, isn't there? And then your teams to manage it as well. And like you said, the other remote monitoring, if people choose that option, you've got to have people that can do that as well. Yeah, and we suspect there'll probably be a team of sort of 60 to 80 staff on the ground sometime through next year that'll just be looking after the commissioning exercise, the reactive maintenance and warranty-based work. And then as these systems come out of warranty, just kind of looking after the general O&M operation and maintenance side of the work. The workshops will probably cap out at about 400 staff, but then you're going to have a whole lot in the field and a bunch of remote telemetry guys. I mean, it takes a team of 10 guys to look after 50 systems. So you start multiplying the number of systems out there in the world and you see, you soon see just what a huge logistical challenge we've got in front of us. And do you want to say what a system costs for anyone listening? 
or is that site specific and it would require a consultation? It's site specific only because we, we kind of need to know what the client's needs are as to whether there's any pre-treatment or post-treatment work required. And also we're trying various models. So as we kind of move into this space at the commercial level, we're looking, do we sell these systems? Are we better off just providing them free of charge to the clients and then just charging them a, you know, a, a rate per litre that we can process? So we're really still experimenting, I suppose, with the commercials of it. Are these SAF units projected to last? The units should have a field life of 20 years or more. I mean, they're, as I say, they're, they're agricultural. They're pipes and pumps and tanks and valves. And a lot of those um, components uh, are replaceable. So as a pump goes, you know, wears out or uses its end of life, then they can be replaced and as can sections of pipe. So in reality, with good maintenance, these systems should last, you know, many decades in, in truth. So you can't make clients maintain them though, can you? You can only suggest. Oh, no, look, it's it's a client's choice. If they feel they have the internal competency and, and capability to do that, then we, we wouldn't stand in the way of that. You know, in some of the landfill environments, because it is more complicated, we're only at this stage offering a model that is what we call ES, equipment as a service. So we put the equipment in there, the client doesn't own it, we own it, and then we just charge them an agreed rate. In return for that, we also do the remote telemetry and all, whatever operation, maintenance and spares are needed to keep it going. Some landfills are privately owned, but there are still a lot that are run by council. Sometimes their budgets can be lacking, you know, so if you left it in their hands, they may not maintain these systems adequately. Yeah, that's, I mean, it's always a risk. And I've, I often say to our guys, the easiest thing we do is build them. Like keeping them running in the field is the challenge because that's that's how we manage our reputation and that's how the, the good work that they do continues to be done well into the future. So I do think it's an important consideration that clients have a good think about how they're going to manage it and whether they have the capacity. And and if they don't, then we want to create a really extensive network that supports them. Okay. Now we just need to talk numbers on the removal of the priority PFAS, which is your PFOS, PFOA and PFHXS, correct? Correct. This is in the Wiley article at the Oki site. You've got numbers respectively, PFOS greater than 99.8% removal, PFOA greater than 99.8% removal, and PFHXS, it doesn't say greater, it just says 98.4% removal, which is pretty good numbers. And then it says that SAF, your system, followed by AIX resin polishing, was successful in removing 100% of the PFAS. Is that still the case? Using a number of 100%, I often get chastised for it. I guess that was written a couple of years ago, but it all depends what you consider as the limit of reporting. So we were using a you know one part per trillion was the or one nanogram per liter was our limit of reporting for the labs we were using at that site. So when we got to the limits of reporting, you then make the assumption, does that mean there's none left or does that mean that effectively one left? So if you treat that number as one, you can never get to 100%. If it's always just the maximum of the limit of reporting, then of course you can never claim 100. If you make the assumption that you can't detect it, therefore it's not there, then you can call it 100%. But with the benefit of hindsight, I, I you know, I think it's more accurate to, to take a conservative approach and say that if you've reached the LOR, then just call it the LOR rather than any number lower than that. Yeah, that, that makes sense because the LOR is the limits of reporting are changing all the time. Just tell us about briefly about your um, surface active, um, the SAF system that's arrived in Minnesota last year, November 2022. You put out a media release about that one at Lake Elmo, Minnesota. Why is that site significant? And are you confident your technology is going to be able to remediate that site? Uh, so the site's significant because it was ground zero in some ways, certainly for the Minnesotans, uh, where there was a settlement a few years ago, I think 2018, for about $850 million, where the 3M were, were fined for pollution of the catchment there that runs down through Lake Elmo and adjacent water catchment areas. 
the Minnesota Pollution Control Agency became the trustee for that significant amount of money. And so we were fortunate enough to be selected as the first technology that they're deploying for at a full-scale remediation capability. So we're at a place called Tablin Park, just upstream from Lake Elmo, and we're removing PFAS from the groundwater at the moment. So we've been there for five months or so. Over time, we'll be deployed to different areas within the catchment to test us on surface waters and lake waters and so on. To the second part of your question, am I confident? Well, I'd have to say I wasn't as confident <laughs> until I went across there a few weeks ago. It was very low foaming, very hard water. There was a significant limestone cast up gradient from the site where we were drawing water out. And, you know, in foam fractionation, it's quite handy to get foam. Uh, but in this instance, we were getting little to none. So we've had to kind of reinvent the process to work with low foaming or non-foaming waters. So we had a, a number of different settings that we applied to the system and different techniques. And now we're doing extremely well on that site. So we're well into the high 90s in terms of our removal rates for their criteria compounds. So they're targeting the same three, PFOS, PFAR and PFHXS. Over the last couple of weeks, we've been getting those results back in. They're great. So everybody, including myself, is very excited about that job. And I guess the world's kind of looking on to see how it goes. So it was important to us to do well. So if it's not foaming well, do you have to add a surfactant? No, not at all. We tried a few different things on that side and it kind of proprietary, not wanting to give too much away, but there were no additives at all. No, nothing went into the system. No new chemistries were added. We just had different techniques to spill over. You do get a level of stratification of PFAS that occurs within the water body. The bubbles will carry it up, but it, they won't present it as a foam. You have the ability through a spillover process to be able to harvest those PFAS still. You've just got to adjust your fill levels, adjust your aeration levels, adjust your energy levels within the system and cycle it in slightly different ways to get the good results. So for us, that's great because you are going to encounter hard waters a lot that don't foam. So knowing that we've got techniques that allow us to deal with those waters and remove PFAS down to these levels we need to, which are single digit parts per trillion levels is really important. So this comes down to your expertise and a specialized manipulation technique to get those results? Yeah, well, it's a bit of good luck and a bit of good management, I suppose. You definitely do come a bit of a foam whisperer. You start watching this water very closely for its physical parameters and characteristics, and you start to read it. And through reading it, you're able to dial the system in. And once it's dialed in, you have pretty significant latitude in terms of temperatures changing or pHs or electrolytes or other chemistries coming into the mix. It's obviously very technical. This site, just a landmark settlement with 3M and uh, this is, it says here in your media release that it's one of the highest profile PFAS impacted locations in the world. On account of the the settlement, it's really attracted a lot of attention. So there's not too many individual state bodies with $850 odd million at their disposal to explore how they can generally resolve the PFAS problem for their community, largely around the fine. I don't say it's the worst contaminated site. I've seen a number worse uh, indeed. I just wanted to make sure in your talking points that you had in front of you before today's discussion that you feel that you've had a chance to talk about them. Yeah, I didn't really have any uh, agenda, to be honest. I was just kind of, uh, you know, I'm happy to have a chat about anything and really nothing's off limit. Uh, you know, I, I'm not here to kind of try and do a sales spiel or or convince people that we've got the best tech. I think we've got a good tech that fits in well in the ecosystem of PFAS remediation technologies. And you know, as I sort of said it earlier, but as an environmental scientist, it's, it's kind of a real once in a lifetime chance to actually become a big part of the solution instead of kind of working for big corporates and just trying to clean up their mess. I guess we're still doing that, but it's just this new area. It's fascinating science. We, really privileged as a little kind of Aussie battler company from Australia who's really knuckled down and had a red hot crack at trying to solve this problem and suddenly we, we feel a little bit like rock stars I suppose in the global remediation area because you know, we're getting a lot of uptake. I think we're the first to really commercialise at scale and so I'm really excited about where it's all heading. It is incredible and it is great that it's come out of Australia of course. We haven't talked about wastewater treatment plants because we do know that the effluent coming out of the wastewater treatment plants after it's treated because of precursors, PFAS was coming out in a higher concentration than the influent into a wastewater treatment plant. Can it be utilised for the treated water 
from a sewerage treatment plant or wastewater treatment plant before that gets put back onto agriculture? I think it can do even better than that. I think it can do the pre-treated water. So we're just waiting on approval for a trial with a client to, to position a SAF behind the primary screen of a sewage treatment plant where we'll be fractionating the water. Because keep in mind, these are just big tanks with air bubbles in them when push comes to shove. And so you can have all the rubbish and crap in them in the world. As long as there's not enough grit to damage pumps and impellers and the primary screen takes a lot of that stuff out, we have no reason to think that SAF won't work in those really heavily turbid waters behind a primary screen. We've done a lot of work in transitioning PFAS from where it's bound to soil particles and colloidal phase particles into the aqueous phase, which kind of, as a rule, preferentially transitions into the aqueous phase. So if we can dish that water body enough in the SAF vessels to remove the PFAS with the air bubbles and float it to the top, then we can actually even remove it from the sludge phase while it's in suspension within the SAF unit itself. That for me would be just amazing. If you know, it works in principle, it works at a very small scale. Uh, can we do it at a big scale? I guess that remains to be seen, but that is a big focus for me because I think wastewater treatment plants all over the world, it's such a big problem. No one wants to talk about it, but if we can get in there, reduce it by orders of magnitude from the sludge content as well as the aqueous phase, what a great result is that? It'd be amazing work if you could do it. Wastewater treatment plants use pumps and pipes to transfer water every day of the week and, and valves. And our systems are made from HDPE and very resilient plastic. So from a chemical resilience point of view, I'm absolutely 100% confident that it'll manage that matrices without being damaged. So I think the only material change that we would probably need is we would probably put a V-bottom in some of the tanks so that we can, if they do build up a sludge, we've got the capacity to drain them. And we, we, we already have a drainage port where you could vacuum it out, but we would probably just engineer that a little bit more cleverly. We're definitely moving to a point where we're going to hop outside the container, so what we internally call the Megasaf. So when we start looking at treating uh, reverse osmosis brine, for example, on gigalitre a day drinking water treatment plants or gigalitre a day sewage treatment plants, we've got to get big bigger than the 2.4 metre height that we have in containers. So we've got a number of fairly advanced designs for SAF vessels that are effectively the size of wheat silos and so that they have the capacity to handle these huge volumes of water at, at particularly drinking water treatment and sewage water treatment plants because they're the last points in the funnel before it exits and gets out into the environment. And at that point, you really got to work hard to get it after that. So we want to get it before it makes that exit point from the funnel. Well, it would be wonderful because we have talked a lot in this podcast about biosolids and their land application. And we've got farmers all around, especially the US, Maine, etc., that their dairy farms have closed down because of contaminated sludge, etc. Germany, it was a big problem. The other thing is, though, I just wanted to ask your systems, the scooping of the foam off the top is does your system automatically do that it's all fully automated so if in the primary stage we have an inverted funnel if you like with a wide open throat and you're injecting air from the bottom so you're creating positive airflow so the foam is constantly pushed up and out of the system into the primary holding tank once it's gone to the primary holding tank you've harvested your PFAS and the water that's left in there is treated down to these single digit PPT levels and so then your challenge which we adopt the secondary and tertiary concentration stages we're trying to dewater it and just to give you an idea at the Oki site we've now treated the best part of 200 million litres of groundwater over the last three odd years and we've reduced that down to under 100 litres of tertiary hyperconcentrate. Mind-bogglingly small volume given the amount of been treated and in leachates it's not unrealistic to get tens to hundreds of thousands of times concentration reductions in the final hyperconcentrate. so fairly small volumes there. And why it's important that you've reduced it down to 100 litres is because that's the result that then needs to be destroyed. So it's less being moved for destruction, correct? Yeah, look, I have long felt that everybody focused on the destruction piece of the puzzle and everyone saw this kind of tsunami of PFAS impacted water needing destruction. But the reality is if you can effectively separate and then concentrate the PFAS out of the water and reduce it down to really small volumes, the destruction piece becomes much more manageable. So we've dealt with pretty much every destruction cell provider in the world, I think, to date. And all of them on average have a throughput of no more than, say, a gallon a minute 
or, you know, best a few gallons a minute. And so you extrapolate that out to what they can do in a day. It doesn't even touch the size of the amount of water that needs to be treated through these drinking water and sewage treatment plants. So you have to get the concentration step right. And so that's something for all these years, that's the bit we've really been concentrating on getting right. Because a lot of people that do listen to this podcast are communities and we do know that in America, for instance, there's a lot of people with private wells that they have for drinking, whereas, you know, we might have rural farmers here in Australia and and I know that there have been many in the Williamtown area, etc., where their wells have been impacted by PFAS. In all these wonderful remediation technologies, the community is left out every single time. By saying that, I mean that they still say nobody's cleaning up our water or our land. We still can't plant our vegetables. We still can't water our cows because our wells are contaminated. And yes, there's been payouts, but they're still left living on these contaminated lands. And this is a real concern. You know, I know of farmers that had to fill up bathtubs for their cows to drink because they can't drink from the wells. So do you plan your company to do anything at all where you could use something like a more mobile mini version of the SAF that could then be for people that have wells and somehow you get a system that scoops off the PFAS and they can use those wells again. Yeah, and we've got a really cool project with CDM Smith in Florida that's um, funded by the Air Force over there, and it's using in-situ fractionation wells. So we have a trench that's about 10 metres wide by a metre thick and about four or five metres deep, and the PFAS-impacted water is flowing from the site through that trench. We're aerating that water from the base, and then we're vacuuming it from the top using kind of a blanket system over the water at the top. You know, we're getting excellent removal rates. We've done a number of in-situ well projects where we're fractionating down in a well, intercepting the groundwater through an, an array of wells, which trap the PFAS, bring it to the surface in the well, allow the treated water to recirculate out of the well and allow us to harvest that PFAS and then concentrate it at the surface. So there are certainly techniques for doing it on small scales. And we're also looking at some fairly small systems that are used for trade waste and treating small systems like hundreds or even just low thousands of litres a day just so that some of these industrial complexes and private users can have an accessible technology. About the trench site example, do you think that that would have potential to clean up these contaminated drain network up at Williamtown that runs into Saltash and Fullerton Cove because those drains are still contaminated? So every time there's water off the base, they're still going through PFAS contaminated drains. My observation, Kayleen, is if you can hold it for long enough to fractionate it, which is typically somewhere between 5 and 30 minutes, you can remove the PFAS from that water. The starting concentrations can be in the low tens of PPTs or they can be in the high hundreds or tens of thousands of PPTs. So if you can hold it, it'll transition quickly into a foam phase and be able to be removed. So I think there is hope for those kind of water channels to have some sort of remediation technology integrated into them. Yeah. Well, let's just hope that the uh, Australian government comes to the party on paying for the cleanup of those drains because the community can't do it. It's good to finally have remediation experts talking to me in the podcast because for so long we've just focused on the problems of PFAS. So it is really great when we get the opportunity to talk about solutions. In the last 12 months and even the last few months, we've just seen that conversation towards remediation ramping up enormously. And, you know, on the back of that, we've got the confidence now to invest in the US market with this huge manufacturing facility. And so I do think, you know, for people who have been patiently waiting or perhaps not not so patiently over the last years, then hope is not that far away. I think over the next few years, we're going to see some really major remediation initiatives start to be implemented around the world, which is fantastic. All these remediation techniques at scale and large scale is fantastic, but it'd be great if people could come up with solutions that these everyday farmers, everyday battlers could clean up their own water sources. It would probably help a lot of farmers. Yeah, I agree, Kayleen. It's just, you know, like this whole thing, unfortunately, is is a question of commerce in many ways. Yeah, who's going to pay for it? I guess guys like myself and many other really capable engineers and remediators are, are developing 
products. It's just a matter of getting that government will and these class actions are certainly driving a huge amount of government will towards getting solutions implemented, but so painfully, glacially slow sometimes. You're creating it for scale, so you obviously need to be able to create something that someone with the money can pay for. So that's clear, the commercial interest and needs. The company's no good to anybody if we can't be viable. So you, you are looking for the opportunities that generate income. And it- I guess the hard thing for me doing this pod, I've, I've sat down with these people and, and I've seen their distress and anguish and Oh, no. And, you know, everyday farmers that wanted to hand on a farm to children that's contaminated and, and they don't even want it. And and every time it rains and floods, you know, their cows are drinking the PFAS surface waters. And, you know, I hear all those stories and see the tears. So I will always bring up community in these discussions because they haven't got their full resolution yet by any means. No, they're not very well represented, unfortunately, and they're right at the end of the chain in terms of receiving solutions. And so it can only imagine how frustrating it is for those landowners. As all you remediation experts keep dealing with the macro issues, the highly polluted sites with large volumes of water, as you keep doing that and getting your systems out there, hopefully then maybe you can turn your attentions to helping communities more. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it can be done at any scale. I'm familiar with most of the techs and they can all be done at large and small scale. It's Again, it just comes down to where do these companies, all of whom are commercial really, uh, where do they find their opportunity? And it's not that we couldn't do it. We absolutely could build smaller systems, but I just haven't seen the opportunity to do so. And every time you do an engineering exercise, you've got to spend you know, a quarter of a million, half a million dollars to get the engineering completed. And it... Is there anything that we've missed that you think we should have mentioned before I go is there anything else you want to add about SAF or PFAS in general and I think we've, we've covered most ends of the spectrum it's been a nice chat and well done on the tech um, thank you for being a guest on the Talking PFAS podcast today Pete really enjoyed talking to you thank you it's a pleasure Kayleen thanks for having me and yeah, appreciate all your work on it I hope you enjoyed today's episode and please feel free to share it This week I'm at an ELGA PFAS event in Sydney and next week I'll be heading to a CRC Care PFAS event in Newcastle. As both of these PFAS events have international speakers present, I hope to be able to bring you more of the latest PFAS news from around the world. The next full-length Talking PFAS episode will publish around the end of May and hopefully I can bring you a little update in between. Thank you again for listening and remember all information in today's episode is copyright. Please contact me for republishing permissions but feel free to share the link on your social media or anywhere that you wish to. You can contact me at talkingpfas at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening. See you next time.